Hello and welcome to the Conscious Consulting Podcast, where we will introduce you to the Conscious Consulting philosophy. Together with our senior advisors from all around the world, we blend the deep knowing of wisdom traditions, technology, modern science and business, and show you how to transform this wisdom into impact in your daily life as a consultant, leader or entrepreneur. Welcome to the CCG community. The real magic happens when you transform wisdom into impact. But have you ever wondered how to integrate your deep spiritual practice into your daily life? Me too. And that's why I invited our senior advisor Ying Xiao Liu from Seattle to the podcast to ask her this exact question. Ying is a former director of design at LinkedIn and a living example of what integration means. Because at the time, as a leader in Silicon Valley, she also lived at a Zen temple and studied ancient wisdom traditions. So instead of creating a typical work-life balance, Ying started to integrate these seemingly incompatible areas of life until they were inseparable. In this episode, Ying shares the story of assigning to a new culture, how she blended ancient wisdom with today's business world and how that made her the extraordinary leader and advisor she is today. Sit back, relax and enjoy a wonderful new episode of the Conscious Consulting Podcast. Hi Ying, thank you for taking the time to come to the second episode of the Conscious Consulting Podcast. I am super excited about our conversation today. Hi Lisa, great to be here. We have a lot to cover, but I want to talk to you about something in specific today. Mm -hmm. um, so your life is signed by integration and combination of different worlds Mm -hmm. You grew up in China and then you moved to the U.S. at the very crucial age of 18. And mm -hmm. you have a deep spiritual practices and an amazing career in Silicon Valley in, in the tech world. Together, we will dive deeper today into integrating the wisdom, the spiritual practice into the modern complex daily life. Wonderful. Thank you, Lisa. So you were born in China and then mm -hmm. came to the US at the age of 18. So I don't know about you, but I remember 18 as an age where you have everything figured out and where you think you know everything about life. And how was it for you to move to a completely different country and culture at that age? Uh, so it was overwhelming. It was really difficult. I didn't have um, enough language. Um, so the first three years, I really hunkered down and I was determined not to sort of sound forever like I'm fresh off the boat. Um, I was I was really adamant not to have that handicap because I've, I see my community, like my cousin who came to the U.S. much, much earlier than I did, still have a very strong accent as an adult. So I, I, I sat down and like, you know, did a really hard study of the English language. And luckily, I'm, uh, I, I'm very interested in language. So a few years later, uh, you know, people would comment on my language abilities. And, and that really was one of the first successes of my life, I would say, how I set out to do something. And I was able to do it, even though I didn't know if I could. So the rest of life was still really difficult. Like, 
getting a driver's license, having my first accidents <laughs> and sort of being overwhelmed by the systems. Um, but luckily, I do think the West, especially the U.S., is a really amazing place for young adults. There are so many opportunities. Um, you know, where I come from in China, we didn't have libraries, you know. So I was just amazed at the abundance that this place offered in terms of learning and in terms of teachers um, the teachers at the community college I was going to was, were amazing. And some are, some are still my mentors today, you know, 25 years later. Um, yeah. So I, I both benefited a great deal from being an immigrant and it was a formational experience of my life in that it's one of the hardest things I've, I've ever done is to um, assimilate uh, and, and do my best to integrate into this culture. And I certainly still had my struggles uh, in my 20s of being, you know, after graduating from college, the uh, sort of beef, a sense of being lost and so on. And, and that's not so different from people who grew up in this culture. But I think being someone from a different culture, there's, there's also another layer of um, finding belonging that is that is uh, not, not a trivial thing. And um, back then, we didn't really have the language about diversity and belonging. So there's definitely unconscious and conscious bias um, in many levels, right? From, you know, people on the street to workplaces. So there was a lot to navigate. And um, that did also form my own uh, emphasis later as a when I became uh, in a leadership role, how I wanted to create belonging for others who come from another culture. And it's beautiful that you give now back what, what you have needed back then. Yeah. Um, where exactly mm -hmm. did you go to university? I went to University of California, Davis, and I studied design. Um, yeah. So which is a generalist profession, which actually suited me well. Okay, so design in which direction or just? Yeah, it was called the environmental design and the emphasis that I chose were uh, visual communications, which can be called graphic design and also textile and costume. And then about the time I was graduating, the internet was just starting to come up. So I was lucky to also learn web design and that, um, you know, became sort of my my path in 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 jobs right like there were <laughs> there were jobs in, in in the web and technology and not so much in theater <laughs> so um so i ended up in the digital realm and then later became an interaction designer um and in many ways that was actually good for me the left brain and the right brain um uh sort of working more in conjunction and i i am you know, it's partly the culture I come from being very rational. Um, it's, it, it takes me, it, it has taken me a lot of time, right? Like most of my life to come to be able to consider my own sort of personal expressions as worthy of my time to, 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 to craft it. So um, I needed to go through that sort of problem solving side of things first, and then come to the more mystical magical part of expression i work both in corporations and in design consulting um, i really benefited from both worlds i um, also did you know I, i i am a journalist as i mentioned i also did other roles in particular outdoor education or a better word for it is experiential education so 
for maybe 14 years or so, I, I've, um, this, is, this is a conscious uh, role of bridging my cultures. I work for a company based in America that takes American teenagers and gap year students to developing countries. And their base is China. They've been doing that for more than 25 years in China. So I became their China director at one point um, after SARS, actually, to rebuild their program. And that really benefited um, um, myself in amazing ways. I really learned much about group dynamics and leadership and basically coaching skills from that methodology. Um, and I continue to, to work for them here, here and there. Yeah, at one point, I also became a, a, a linguist, a, a translator, a certified translator, because I, that's another effort to not lose my language. And then a, a role at, at uh, LinkedIn became possible and came through one of my contacts uh, there uh, about uh, localizing the LinkedIn, basically the website and the app into Chinese for the Chinese market. And this was a role that um, all the different things in my life comes together, you know, integrated in a certain way. So initially I was talking to them uh, about it as a, doing it as a consultant um, and I was in Seattle, they're in San Francisco Bay Area. I didn't want to return to the San Francisco Bay Area. I'm, I'm very attached to Seattle. Um, but when I started to talk to the hiring manager about the, the role later, I was just buzzing with energy. And I realized this is something that is uh, more than just a gig, you know. And so I uprooted my life again, went to the Bay Area and, you know, worked for them for five and a half years. And, um, you know, after launching the Chinese edition of LinkedIn, um, I started to manage other international teams, you know, India, we also work on German, uh, you know, on German uh, and other language editions of, of LinkedIn. So basically the international markets overall. And that was a, a really, really fun experience. I, you know, being able to combine travel with my work and being able to uh, help young professionals around the world, both through the product and also directly as a manager was, was really kind of a dream job for me for a long time. So interesting because um, I think as we, as we discussed but before, uh, I think for many people that are like in between cultures, they hide their origin in order to like succeed in the new country, for example. But by embracing and living your identity, um, they were opening yeah, some, some possibilities for you. So this is really interesting and a personal learning that we can take from that. So embracing their, their origin. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I can, I can see uh, most of the young people that I managed, uh, the initial inclination is to assimilate, right, is to adopt the Silicon Valley culture. Um, and I'm giving them an alternative. I'm saying you can, you can increase your range of possibilities, right? You can choose how you respond to situations in the moment rather than feel that where you come from or how you have been is something less than. I think this this must be super important for a lot of people working there internationally. Speaking of Silicon Valley, at the time you have been working in, in Silicon Valley at LinkedIn, you have also lived in a, a Zen temple. Mm -hmm. 
This was about uh, 2013. Yes, that's that right. Correct? 2013 to uh, 2018 somewhere. Um, not not completely continuous, but for the most part, I was residing at a Zen center. Um, yeah, uh, like so many things, I'm grateful for the things that come to be in my life. Initially, because I was reluctant to return to Silicon Valley, I was just looking for a place to meditate. I had a sort of non-serious uh, uh relationship with Buddhism at the time. I was simply interested in some of the wisdom. Um, so I found this place that was in the hills uh, surrounded by lovely nature. And I went there a few times. I was so um, respectful that for the first couple of times, I didn't even step inside the meditation hall called the Zendo. I simply walked the grounds. But then I, you know, over time I, I kept returning. I did a couple of weekend self-retreats there. And the people started to say, why don't you live here? You seem like a good fit. And I said, no, no, no. It's too far to my work. It's about an hour drive. Um, I don't have enough time to do more. I can't commit to the 6 uh, Actually, uh, I think it was 5.30 a.m. meditation um, time and et cetera, right? So I was reluctant, but they keep suggesting it. And I thought, okay, maybe I should do the sort of you know, months long trial period, uh, because there's a trial period to see if it's a good fit anyway. So then once I tried it, it was like, oh, something shifts from in the inside, you know, time became more spacious. I did have less, you know, quantity of time, free time, but the time I had, it was more meaningful. And that was a revelation. So then I stayed um, and I, I learned so much uh, about myself, about practice, about communities there. And I'm still keen to um, continue uh, in some way to create intentional communities. I think that's a, a, a not easy, but a, but a, but a very um, natural way for people to live is in community. Yes, I can imagine. Um, so uh, two things. Um, you said you were also interested in Buddhism before. Have you always seen uh, yourself as a spiritual person, as a spiritual seeker, or did that arose arise some? Oh yeah, quite late in my life, I would say. No, I did not see myself as a spiritual seeker at all. My um, father is a scientist. I grew up in a scientist science community in China, kind of the MIT of China. So, um, you know, the if there is a religion, it would be science, right? And so it's actually very adamantly atheistic. And so I grew up basically as an atheist. Um, and later I realized that I have an old soul, <laughs> one would say, right? And I have a sense of um, mysticism, especially with nature, my connection with nature. I wasn't using language of, of religions with it at all, but I could feel something in nature um, that is, is more true to me than anything. And so then later when I started going to Buddhist talks, so just out of interest, I started to recognize um, that I understand their, what they're talking about. And so then over time, very slowly, I'm, I'm someone who is like a slow adopter in everything. Um, 
very slowly I started to, you know, take steps toward a spiritual practice and considering myself as a, as a more serious student of, of spirituality and not only of Buddhism, but also of Native American spirituality. So basically old, old traditions. Um, but it, it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's very hesitant steps but now of course like i i am very committed to these practices and i can understand that uh, we all have that part of ourselves it just i grew up in a way that was um that did not recognize did not recognize that the this that that's that what we call spirit coexist with with everything with mundane and rational and scientific phenomena mm, i can can relate i can understand so and then you found found this uh zen temple one hour from silicon valley and then you you chose to give it a try and um after the one month you stayed you stayed there how did your day look like back then Yeah, early morning meditation followed by uh, uh, what's called a service, which is a, a small ritual of dedication of the merit of the meditation. So, you know, that there's meditation is never just for oneself. It's for the benefit of all beings. And then there's a little bit of um, what they call shoji, which basically means picking up. So like a little bit of chores of keep up, keeping up the temple. And um, and then generally I go to work. Um And, and at the time, I was also riding a motorcycle. So it was uh, an interesting transition as well from the mountains, the windy roads, which it, it was in itself a kind of ritual until you come to the concrete jungle of Silicon Valley. Um, and then in the evening, there's another meditation session. Uh, sometimes I cannot make that if I'm working a little bit late. Um, we don't have you know, generally communal dinners, it's, it's really optional. So, but still like in the communal kitchen, you come to the other residents. Um, there's about 10 or so people. Um, so, you know, there's basically sort of, you know, just improvised uh, social time. And, and, um, and then the main uh coordinated or curated uh, event is on Sunday where the Zen Center offers a public program year round free of charge. So then there's uh, two meditation sessions, meditation instruction followed by a Dharma talk by a teacher or a resident uh, or visiting teachers um, and then a public lunch. So, uh, and then sometimes there's a guided walk in the nature afterwards and people also can, you know, do some volunteering um, And a lot of fun and magical experiences happen then. Um, so we take turns basically cooking that Sunday dinner, right? Like for 40 people or so. Um, so, so you know, there's some prep work to be done beforehand. So it was, it was really a, a wonderful opportunity to join in sort of a rhythm of service and to learn how to do that for a community, for public. But as it's still from the outside, it it seems like those worlds are not combinable. Like it it seems so different. And how how did you yeah integrate or balance those two different worlds, Silicon Valley and the Zen Temple? Yeah, that's a good question. I I think uh, most people definitely viewed uh, 
the combination of my life then as sort of something exotic and something that they are interested to have a view into, but not they don't feel it's for themselves. Um, and, and for a while, I did not talk about the Zen Center at my workplace. Uh, but then with my team, because I'm close to them, right, and I practice um, openness, right? That's how you model leadership, really. So I started to talk about some of it. And I also was feel, I, I was having the learning myself that the meditation practice was changing how I, how I would behave in very small ways at the workplace. I was more open. I was uh, able to allow more pauses when there's you know attention or, or some kind of discomfort in a meeting, et cetera. I was handling stress myself differently. And I was able to share that experience with my team just as they were happening. And then they, I started using some Buddhist language like um, basic goodness and uh, the right response, et cetera. And, and so my team really took to it uh, amazingly well. And then basically with their encouragement, I started to talk about it more and more. And I invited some of them to visit on Sundays and, and um, you know, and so and then the rest of Silicon Valley was also basically starting to open up to this next big thing of mindfulness, right? And adopting from Asian wisdom, especially Buddhism. So I was just very lucky to be in that intersection a little bit before most people were. And I was able to live that duality. And, and, and so I, I, I understand that desire for, a different way of being for the people working in tech then, right? Because it's so type A, very driven, um, and they need, they want to know that there's a different sense of space and a different sense of being, you know, instead of just becoming always, you know, always like efforting. So I, so I, I understand the sort of the, experience of being both spaces and I was able to be a little bit of a guide for some people um, and I was also later able to speak about that experience and uh, which was useful for 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 myself and for a lot of people yeah it's really interesting because I sometimes have to have the feeling that when you're like in this corporate world there you have to give up every spiritual every piece you have um, at the door and then you walk in and have to be a different person so I think it's super interesting to hear that um, you could take it with you inside and and also um Yeah, people benefited from your meditation as well. Yeah, so I often contrast the concepts of balance and integration. So balance, um, you know, for all my time in the U.S., people talk about work-life balance a lot. And I never could quite understand that because it seems like we're using the best hours of our days, right? Like, you know, from nine to five or nine to seven or whatever it is at work. So like, what are you talking about? That is life, right? There is no separation of work and life. So I, you know, eventually I started to see this balance is a, is a sort of um, a, a mental model that is actually slightly misleading because balance, if you think about it, it's one side up when the other side goes down, right? So it's actually a zero sum game. 
But life doesn't have to work that way. And life actually does not work that way. So my different mental model is integration and the mental image I use is a drop of inking water and it swirls through all of the water and the two become inseparable. And the, you know, if you can picture a drop of inking water, it has emergent properties. That powder is beautiful and also unrepeatable. It's unique each and every time. So it's, 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 a, it's at a more complex layer than the idea of balance, which is linear and binary. So the more we can go to a more complex layer of thinking, the more it's actually accurate to how life operates. So the principle of integration for me meant a, 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 a greater level of trust in the workplace, which, you know, and I can give many examples of what that concretely means. One thing is to let go of things that I have done but also to let go of things I have not done, right? The things I could not get to, right? Uh, you know, because we have so many thoughts, oh, I wish I did this, or I need to do this, but I'm not sure if I can get to it, et cetera, right? There's only so many hours in a day. But to spend less energy on that cycle and just focus on what I am doing and trusting my actions more than my thoughts, and that was really, really freeing. It did free up a lot of energy for me to be more present with my pe the people in front of me, the task at hand, and just let go of all the other what-ifs. So that's one example. Another example could be, you know, at a meeting, there can be a disagreement. And so, you know, what do you do? Like we don't, we don't actually concretely know with our with our cognitive brain what to do in that moment, right? And there can be a sort of awkward silence. So I started to just trust. If I feel impulse to say something, I will say it. I won't self censor too much. And sometimes it's a recognition of, oh, you really want something, something, right? You really want something to succeed. Right. Which is, you know, later I learned this is very useful in coaching, for example. Right. It's appreciation and affirmation. Um, but then I was just I was just going with my impulses and I was able to lean in. And after that, often someone else would offer something and then the energy would start to shift. So it's those kinds of moments when I started to have trust for the situation and also trusting my own ability to respond to that situation in a helpful way and not be attached to what actually happens, not to attach to like some kind of agreement or, you know, to the agenda, right? To have an intention, but not, not as much of an agenda. So those are, I would say, two examples of how um, integration or my meditation practice was able to help me specifically in the workplace. Super interesting that you, that you said, um, Meditation is not just for yourself, but for everybody around you. I never heard that before. Could you just explain this a little bit? Yeah, I think many uh, spiritual wisdom and certainly indigenous practices, uh, they always have a connection between, um, I would say, the calling to sort of self-development and the calling to be of service to one's community and to the greater good. Um, 
you know, in Native American practice, um, the very difficult physical trials or challenges are only done with the service of with with the participation of people supporting you, the what they call supporters. So the supporters and the 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 questers or or dancers in the sense of sand dance are deeply connected. And they even talk about um the, the 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 supporters are drinking and eating for the people who are questing, who are who are fasting basically from food and water. So um, um so it, it is very interesting. It is very interesting away from the solitary and individual individualist pursuit of some state of being, right? And some something for oneself. And that really changed and, and that for me also I think as a woman, I'm, I feel more uh, able to pursue these things actually because it's not just for myself. <laughs> it gives me it gives me more permission to um, to do it because I, I I can connect right. This is not just for me. It will it does benefit other people in so many ways, and I've experienced it myself a lot as a supporter, both in Native American practices and in Buddhism. You know, the 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 retreats, for example, in, in Buddhism called Sashin in the Japanese Zen tradition, there's a lot of work that is done by the Sashin participants and also um, sometimes staff, but it's, it's a work of love. And it all goes down silently and smoothly, in which is actually really, really fascinating in terms of um, organizational behavior, and because it's emergence, people people step in to do what's needed. I will also share in my in my travels, in especially in India, um, some of the spiritual centers there are at a much much larger scale than they are in the West. Um, one of them has, for example, they feed 2,000 people at any given lunch, and it's all done by volunteers. When one volunteer is done with a particular task or feel like he or she needs a break, they simply tap on another person and says, can you step in for a while? And so it's all like no hierarchy. It's all fully emergent. But Shangri-La, the, the hotel chain, has to come to this, this spiritual center to 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 learn their best practices for how, how to orchestrate something so complex in such a short amount of time. So this is just really fascinating to me, right? But it, there is, people are strongly motivated by a purpose of service. I, I think it's actually where we should move towards. And I, I see that also in the young people I work with. Money is, uh, is not the main motivator. There's a sense of being connected to something larger right? And to the people around them. Thank you for sharing that. I think that is very, very important. And how did you cope with people and leaders that are putting yeah, their pressure on you and, and, and stress you? We can't please everybody. So that is also a part of letting go, right? Is to, <laughs> to be uh, much less attached to what other people think of us. I, I, I recognize then that, you know, some people, uh, some of my peers uh, could perceive me as the sort of hippie, right, in the corporate place. Um, even though I was still very sort of cautious about the language I use and, how, you know, how I carry myself. Um, but other people really gravitated toward uh, what I had to share. So I had enough positive data that I was fully able to, to uh, let go of the, 
the negativity that I feel because I realize the more I am who, who I am, the more polarizing I would be. And and that is uh, that is life. That is life. You cannot be a sort of lukewarm version of yourself. <laughs> that is does not lead to fulfillment for anybody. And the same thing was happening in my um, personal life. You know, I realized, I, I think many people do on their spiritual journey that some friends simply fall away because they don't connect with that deeper part of ourselves. And that's okay. I was able to let go of some circles um, and parts of my uh, myself that I had that, that had previously been important to me in order to make space for kindred souls that are my, you know, that are my, my, my true, true, um, uh, uh, the the people who share on my my on my journey the travelers with me yeah so that that's really interesting you have to be relentless yourself to yeah and to let go i think like letting go of what no longer serves is um you know both uh personally and interpersonally such an important part of our practice right you know life is coming through all the time new things are emerging all the time we don't have to worry about there being changes or changes that we want to see we i think the work always is more to let go of the things that are taking up space what is also very interesting is that it seems that questions you ask yourself from the outside like i'm i'm asking you right now how did you integrate it and how were people dealing with it how did you cope with stress leaders but when you live this authentic self or yourself and your origin um then i think many problems are solving themselves because when you raise your energy level then mm -hmm. it affects yeah. other people yeah And, Sorry. and also, as you said, um, in the first place, you in first uh, first you thought that you don't have time for the Zen temple and this practice and the meditation, but then uh, time expands and suddenly it is possible. So yeah, that's um, right. Yeah, how how did it affect your your time? Sure. Um... I think a, a shorthand, maybe we can talk about flow, right? A lot of people recognize the experience of flow. It's a concept that we understand, um, a lot of people understand, including lots of professionals. So um, I had the experience of flow in small in small ways. Sometimes it's simply, sometimes it's in meditation, but oftentimes it's simply interpersonal connections. And that... I, uh, or even I think an experience that um, many people have too is when they have, when they do something really fully, fully focused, and then they go and do something expensive. Like for me, that's often a walk in nature. You have a very different sense of it. I, and I, this happens to me often um, that when I take a walk after meditation uh, or after really a, And so many times um, I have the experience that the nature that I was around was the most beautiful thing I have ever seen. Right. And I, it's, it's, it's the same thing I've seen a hundred times yet my experience of it is so delicious. It's so nourishing. And so, you know, I, I know from my cognitive brain, like 
this is this is this is something to look worth looking into or worth worth recognizing so that I can have this experience when it when it's something that would serve me so uh yeah and also in the workplace right like you know spend some time connecting with people for no reason not just to get something done but just to connect with them right after some sort of hard mental problem solving and uh, it will feel the contrast by itself would feel very um rich but it it also often for me have a sort of deeply uh satisfying sense um a, a taste that i i started to more consciously replicate what would you tell people when they say uh, i don't have time for this yeah so it's simply to recognize the things that we are already doing in our day that have that feeling right like anything in our life is actually quite um have the feeling of ritual like the experience of getting ready in the morning right it's actually a set of ritual that can take on a layer of feeling and significance if we simply um have that intention for it to be really all it takes is intention it can be useful to have a small gesture like you know facing the sun in the morning and just sort of have a sense of welcome right or a lot of people have a sense of giving thank you at the end of the day right whether it's around a meal or before going to bed you know it's wonderful for people who come from a spiritual um practice and and you know they they recognize the importance of of being explicit about that intention but for even people who are sort of fully pragmatic like 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 I was right um just noticing the times when you know you look out and you see you see the clouds right and there's some there you you notice the details right and so just just recognizing that's actually integration happening that's our system that's our system finding connection to something very deep um in in somatic practices um there's a way of scanning internally and externally and it's so interesting that when we scan externally in what our surroundings are we naturally notice the things that bring us comfort our system knows how to integrate our biological system does so it's simply to to sort of you know in the in the course of the day like enjoy your shower right enjoy the sensation of the brush on your hair it's deeply comforting and pleasurable actually um you know enjoy the taste uh, of you know the the smell of food that you're preparing enjoy the the sensation of the water on your hands as you're washing the dishes and certainly enjoy the touch of the people around you your kids etc right this kind of thing um i was on your linkedin profile of course i did a lot of research um so and i really want to read this because i think it is just one of um many, many uh, nice things former employees have to say about you. So 
this is one of them. Ging deeply cares about growing people and unlocking their potential to let them take risks, learn from their mistake and find pathways that result in higher performance and engaged, fulfilled employees. In her day-to-day, -day, she leads with what I'd call as the three I's, influence, inspiration, and impact. So as I said, this is just one of so many nice things people say about you and your leadership style. What does being a leader means to you? Yeah, thank you. Thank you for um, reading that as well. Um, I'm, I'm very lucky to, <laughs> to be able to sort of help foster the growth of, of some, you know, young professionals. And that was, you know, it's a feedback loop, right? It's, it's so fulfilling for me and helps my growth. Um, the service is, is a positive cycle. Um, being a leader means for me means to really support the people as a whole, right? To see who they are and to allow, allow them to emerge, to allow whatever life wants from them to come forth. Um, if I have a personal model, it would be this one that I would remove the barriers of what's considered impossible so that people can be anything that they want to be. Uh, and to connect with our earlier topic about freedom, I, I, I recognize that much of uh, the lack of freedom is actually self-imposed or that we take the social structures around us and, and internalize it that we cannot do certain things. But at some point in people's journeys, I hope they recognize that's a choice, that we can be free to do anything that we want to do and fully accept the consequences of what that all means, right? Personally and to the people around us and so on and so forth. And then life becomes an amazing expanse of possibilities. And I support people in that. And that's my, I would say that's my leadership style. And um, on a more concrete level, it could be to help them see problems at a different level. You know, because there's never any shortage of so-called problems around us, but problems are opportunities and, you know, there are challenges that we can, that shape us. So my, as, as a leader and a coach, I help people um, take a step back, right? Come to a different level of presence and look at that so-called problem. Um, and, and see what, what it's offering to us. And often, the, first of all, the somatic experience of the tension and the burden changes, right? And then those sort of possibilities um, really emerge. And that, you know, then life takes on sort of a level of richness. It goes on new directions. And it's often very, very exciting. So I love that you're also uh, one of the senior advisors for Conscious Consulting Group. How does your work as a leadership coach or as a senior advisor looks like? Um, yeah, it's to support leaders, um, you know, again, to look at things at a different level. And I think it's leadership is such a rich journey for transformation right and because of the impact on teams and cultures it's it's so um it's it's very important right and and we all recognize that leadership needs to look different so um it needs to be more 
inclusive. It needs to be more emergent. It needs to be more networked. It needs to be more feminine. It needs to be more indigenous uh, informed. It needs to be more um, nature-based, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm, you know, a fellow practitioner on, on, on the journey of how to be in a way that supports the world that needs to come. Right. We, we, the, we cannot go on the same trajectory as before. So I, I think I can embody and support this way of being in today's complexity and help people feel empowered and, um, and, uh, energized by the challenges rather than burdened and sort of pressured and, you know, et cetera. So basically into their bigger selves. Um, yeah. To, to, to go into the world of possibilities and go into the future. Um, the, what could happen is much more magical and much bigger than anything that we think we want. So we have to let go of our problem-solving mind into emergence. I loved it. I loved it very much. At one point, you gave up your leadership position at LinkedIn. How did that come? Sure. I, a lot of having to do with becoming a mother. And so um, I think in Europe, there's better <laughs> better social structures, right, to allow um, the... it's less than the individual nuclear families have to juggle this work-life balance thing, right? Which is kind of a, a false um, promise. Um, but yeah, without better social support and all of our workplaces has to change in big ways. Um, but yeah, the, 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 the division of motherhood and, uh, you know, a full-on uh, work role is very, very difficult. And I, um, I, I became a mother fairly late in life and uh, having a, already an established career, I recognize it's actually more important to me to not miss my, my daughter's childhood. Right. And um, because it, it is, I, I really do believe this is as important a job as anything is to parent one child, right. Because the ripple effects are endless. Um And that I could rebuild, not rebuild, I could reintegrate with my career when I, whenever I want to. I can often, and this is also a, a useful pivot point for me, which it became, right? Like I'm starting to be a fine artist, fine artist, which is something I've always wanted to do since I was five years old as well. So um, then the next level of my engagement in the work world would look different because of my time as a mother and as an artist. So I chose to step away from my full-time role because uh, uh, in, uh, you know, for, for the most part in workplaces, part-time roles are not really possible at a leadership position. So, you know, I could have really pushed the issue, but, but eventually it was, it, this is not my battle to fight. I, I considered making it my, my, my change to try to push. Um, but that, I think that's, that's a larger structural change that will happen at some point, but we're a long ways away from it, which is a more flexible workplace. Um, the idea of feminine leadership is, is an important theme for now, right? Um, I, and that's not exclusive to women. I think it's very, um, it, it's, a, it's a very obvious with sort of mindfulness, et cetera. Really, we are talking about um, 
the, that we we can embody both the masculine and the feminine sides and take from both sides um, uh, in our roles as professionals and especially as leaders. I do think uh, sort of the non-linear, more supportive, more compassionate, more community-oriented ways of uh, a woman, which is also to say a mother, is 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 very important uh, as today's workplaces get more complex and more distributed, right? And and less um, based on sort of some of the uh, processes and psychologies that were part of the industrial revolution. We're in a different age now, right? And with today's young people, uh, you know, getting them to do a certain thing just for the company's bottom line doesn't really work you have to support them as a person. Uh, you know, they have different demands and I, I see that. And um, so I, I, I think it, it behooves all of us to consider. And that's really a personal integration that each person has to walk is the, the duality of the masculine and the feminine, right? Like that, you know, no matter if we're cisgendered or not, that's, that's part of the human life is to, to recognize and to live with both of those polarities and to, to, to take from the, those. I, I, I want to just say for indigenous cultures, it's so interesting that um, there's respect for both genders equally. There's difference. It's not recognizing that women should be doing men's job and vice versa, but they, they have... Um, naturally uh, different strength, but they're equally respected. And I think that is a key, is, is, is not to try to erase the boundaries, but to say that all the diversity is equally needed in the ecosystem. So I, I recognize the ways that I um, can be very masculine in my uh, processes and also leadership styles even but I, I am also a woman um, and you know a woman from a, a somewhat more traditional culture that I'm very mindful of people that I'm uh, my default is to be as inclusive as possible right um, uh, you know it, and, and able to compromise other goals for inclusivity so so I, I'm I'm somewhat conscious of both you know the different different ways that I do things. And I'm also conscious of the discomfort that I feel of, is this more right? Is this more right? And I'm okay with that sense of ambiguity and and, uh, ambivalence about how I should go about doing something because the the questioning is part of the the practice, right? And I allow myself to fail, you know, because if you don't fail, you're not learning. If you don't fail, that also means you're not succeeding. The question I want to ask everyone on the CCG podcast, it's the question from from your perspective, what is the secret to a good life? <laughs> um, that's a great question. The secret to a good life is to recognize the magic of it, the miracle of it, I would say, um, is not to be attached to, to goals. You know, again, what could happen is more magical and much bigger than what we think we want. But to let go into the infinite 
possibilities of being alive. And then life is incredibly rich. It's not easy. Uh, a, a rich life is intense and all-consuming in the sense that it takes more effort than a comfortable life. You know, it's a sense of like being a warrior on a battleground. It's going to take all of you. <laughs> um, but, you know, a, a, a warrior on the battleground is joyous because he or she have trained all his life for this. So, and I feel that. I feel that quite a bit. Um, so that is that is stepping into the abundance um, of life and into a into I, I want to say a, a, a not a dialogue but like a full-on engagement with life itself that I will give what life asks of me and I will be presented with more riches than I could ever imagine perfect last words for this interview we will have follow-up conversations in yes, the podcast yes. of course yes so thank you so much for your time it was a wonderful conversation thank you so much for tuning in and listening to this episode of the conscious consulting podcast if you want to dive deeper into the field of conscious consulting and become a part of our community Visit our website ccg-group.eu and subscribe to our newsletter so we can stay connected. You will find all the links in the show notes. We look forward to having you on board. 